630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Drop pass, drives over McDavid down the middle, wrist shot, score! Connor McDavid, just like that! Smith, three clubbing right hands! Right hands have it! Big right-handed shot from Mike Smith! This is the battle of Alberta! Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Brought to you by Cam LLP Injury Lawyers. Representing injured people in Edmonton and across Alberta since 1962. On the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos, 630 Chad. Okay, thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. I am broadcasting to you once again from my home. And it's a pleasure to connect with you, whether you are in your home or elsewhere tonight as we continue to ride it out through the coronavirus pandemic. I can tell you, when it comes to Edmonton Oilers, Bakersfield Condors forward Colby Cave, uh, no update today. He was in a medically induced coma in a hospital in Toronto after having emergency surgery yesterday to remove a colloid cyst. Cave, 25 years of age, from Battleford, Saskatchewan. So we continue to wait and hope for the best for Colby Cave. Tonight, you'll hear from Craig Simpson, former Edmonton Oiler, lives here in Edmonton, analyst for Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Rogers, as the playoffs would have started tonight had we not been placed in pause. And, and I'm really curious to talk to our first guest tonight, and he's a play-by-play voice in the National Basketball Association, and here's some of his work. Nothing there against Butler. Return to Marcus Smart. Smart on the wing. Swings it around the horn. Jalen Brown. Left side. Pulls up. Another three. Got it again. <laughs> this is when you make your money. He's coming back. Knocking down shots. Play, young man. Play. This is Jalen Brown's night. He's got 20. Celtics again within one. 114, 113, 143, 142, 141 to go. Oh, that's a nice, exciting, high-scoring game involving the Boston Celtics as we welcome Sean Grandy to the show, play-by-play voice for the Celtics. Sean, you're on with Reed. How are you doing, sir? Hi, I can't wait for the reveal when you tell everybody what the real story is behind that <laughs> play-by-play. But, hey, what do you, you tell me, when can I come back to uh, Alberta? Canmore has been my, uh, my summer home for many, many years. Oh, good. Well, hopefully sooner rather than later. I, I'm not overly optimistic about this summer, though, Sean. i got to be yeah. honest with you. Not a lot of airplanes flying around North America right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a time I don't think any of us, any of us could have could have possibly imagined no it's it's pretty crazy but i i i will say this um you know one thing uh, dave campbell's the producer of my show who reached out with you last week to set this up and, and we decided into the spring and summer we were we were talking about this even before hockey placed on pause there are so many great play-by-play stories uh, behind the men and women who call the game so we had tim roy on last week from golden state you're on tonight but I, I want you. You'll do a better job telling the story behind that play-by-play clip because you you are currently calling games, sort of. 
<laughs> yeah, that was uh, – it sounded good. The way you guys had it produced and coming out of the break, that was not real. Um, well, we decided to do it because one of the things going on, and I'm sure it's happening you know, in Canada as well, is you're, you're seeing all these old games right on TV every night. Everybody's running old games. And so we were trying to come up with an idea to – and it wasn't my idea. I won't take credit for it. Uh, but to create some original content for fans – during this time and maybe raise a little money for charity and do that as well. So we decided to, my partner Cedric Maxwell and I, former two-time NBA champion with the Celtics, what if we, how could we continue the season that has been put on pause? So what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is just, uh, I will get from the guys that are putting this together, they'll send me a computer projection of the game, the score, and some of the plays and then it's up to me to basically invent the play-by-play. And so Max and I are trying to bring it to life and create something that is different from watching old games over and over again, which is sort of creating fantasy new games and how this Celtics season might have played out. And it's just sort of a, um, a different way to do it. We're all struggling in our own homes trying to provide content when there's you know such a lack of it. How has it been for you finding the cadence and the energy level? So your call sounds like it might you might actually be in an arena somewhere. The real answer, hard. It's really a lot more difficult than I thought. One of the reasons I, and again, I'm not the one adding, you know, adding the crowd noise. That's really hard to do, too, from a production standpoint, to find the right crowd noise. We had a, a game in which uh, Taco Fall, who's a seven foot six kid from Central Florida, has been coming in at the very end of garbage time. And we had one game that was a blowout game. So we had to, you know, we decided to have him come in at the end and have Brad Stevens bring him into a home game. And the crowd goes, well, they guys had to find, like, the We Want Taco chant from early in the year and kind of add that in. But as a student of play-by-play that I've always been, there there was a time in the old and olden days that baseball was done this way. A lot of sports were done this way, where you'd get the teletype of what was going on from some team on the road, and you had to recreate it in the studio. So it's a uh, it's a challenge to do it. To you're you're no longer captioning pictures as much as you're writing the story around it. So it's hard, but it's there's a throwback element to it that has been challenging and, and certainly enjoyable. Now have the Celtics won every game because this nope, is a fantasy nope. simulation. And I'm not I don't get involved I don't want to know basically what's going to they send me a score. I think maybe the set we had done seven or eight games and maybe the Celtics were I don't know, maybe six and three or something. I don't remember, but uh, I don't want to know. And and there was a game they lost like a home game to Minnesota, which was like a big upset. And D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns went off and had big nights and that happens in the NBA. So to me it wouldn't be realistic if the Celtics won every game. We want to make it exciting. You know, you hope the games are close, and I think maybe they run more than a couple of simulations to get kind of a close, exciting game. But it's not about changing the result as much as it is. Providing what I got on social media, read that the start of it was, hey, we just, you know, we miss you guys. We want to hear your voices, and we miss that. You know, this, all the things all of us take for granted, right, that we no longer have right now. Among those things, and it's not high in the list of important things right now, but having the games and having your announcers on the radio at a certain time of year, you're accustomed to it. So it was just a way for us to give that to fans as well in a, in a different sort of environment. 
Well, that clip that we played, I mean, I think if we didn't tell people, and you mentioned the production crew that's adding the crowd noise, and you referenced some of the chants. Excellent work for sure. Sean Grandy joining us tonight on Inside Sports Play-by-Play Voice for uh, the Boston Celtics. Well, well, we want to we want to get to know you a little bit here and and, and your journey. I, I was I was reading about you, and I know not everything on the internet can be believed, Sean. Uh, but I read you're just the third man in NBA history to have called a thousand NBA games before you turned forty. So so you you jumped in this pretty young, and you've and you've stuck with it and done pretty well. I think uh, Ian Eagle and Marv they told me were the two other guys to to hit that. Yeah, that was almost 10 years ago, so we'll see. And as I approach a big birthday in a couple of years, we'll see how I do. Uh, uh, we'll see if I get to 2,000 before that one. Maybe not if we don't if we don't get started again. Um, I was always, uh, you know, it was something I wanted to do from the time I was very young, from the time I realized that I had great plans for to play second base for the Mets. But that didn't really work out the way I'd hoped. So you have to find a different way um, to the major leagues. And it's funny because – Everyone just assumed, and I did, that hockey or baseball was going to be my path. And hockey was where, in my 20s, I had done most of my work in the college game. And I, you know, called the the Frozen Four for many, many years, the national champ, college championship here. And hockey was always kind of was my very first love. I used to watch, you know, when I was three, four years old, I'd be in front of the TV, you know, watching watching hockey. And I had, I think, my dream wasn't to be the youngest announcer in the NBA. I think my dream as a kid was to become like the first American to do hockey night in Canada like that was you know where my background was but as I tell students and kids who want to go into this business all the time be ready do as many different things as you can do because I don't know what my number one sport was but I know that basketball was clearly number four when I went into the league 20 some wow. years ago and now it's going to be the first you know I'm smart enough to know it'll be the first line of my obituary or my Wikipedia page or whatever it is so it's you know games are games and telling stories is telling stories and to me the great play-by-play announcers are the ones that can do a variety of different sports and tell the stories no matter what yeah that's that's a good way to put it and when i was reading up like i i knew you'd done some hockey and then when i was reading up on you today i was like oh man he's he's uh he's done a ton of hockey and, and you did some uh was it were you a studio host for some for some playoff games for a studio I did, when i was in my 20s it's really funny because yeah. one of the many 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 games that's been run over and over again as they run old games is in 97 when the red wings won the stanley cup i happened to be on the ice i was showing my son who's eight and a half i was showing him what his dad looked like when he was 25 uh, because I was hosting I was the host for NHL radio for the Stanley Cup playoffs and I was on the ice (laughs) talking to Mike Vernon and Steve Eiserman and that group when they won that was an amazing night for Detroit that was the first one that they won in 97 you know after all those years so um, yeah hockey was always my love and I you know the college game kind of gave me my start like almost everything I was lucky enough to do in this business came because of college hockey. That was sort of my first real foot in the door. So for years I went back and, and did the Frozen Four, and I, I, you know, in the States, obviously, I just think it's one of the few things that's left underappreciated in sports and this age of overexposure is college hockey, which to me has just been, you know, a big part of my life. Can you describe the feel and intensity and, and rivalries that factor into college hockey? And I think I specifically have to ask you about the scene there in the Northeastern United States. 
Yeah, you know, Boston College and Boston University, uh, you know, and there's, there's several schools, obviously, in Boston. So every year in February, they play a two-Monday night tournament. It's basically the city championship that a lot of the kids who grow up here think is bigger than playing for a league championship or even the national championship. It means so much to them. And uh, it's like, you know, the, the rivalries carry over from the other from the other sports as well, from, you know, these Big Ten schools and Michigan and Wisconsin and Michigan and Michigan State. And it's Harvard and Yale. And it's, it's very unique here, and it's just something that hasn't sort of penetrated the you know the mainstream, like it, like it probably should have. And I understand you know, for people who don't want to watch the NHL for 82 games, the college game is just a much easier one to to follow. And when you with the one, the, the college basketball tournament so popular in the states, and you have a similar one game knockout deal here in the tournament and in, uh, in the college hockey tournament. So, um, you know, rivalries are. And you're talking to a guy that's called two NBA finals between the Celtics and Lakers, including Game Seven. So, you know, I. I like to say that doing that national championship game and doing the Frozen Four to me was just as important as doing uh, doing the NBA Finals because uh, you know a great event is a great event regardless of the TV rating. Sean Grandy joining us tonight on Inside Sports, play-by-play voice for the Boston Celtics, as uh, he was telling you about calling simulations of games and some memories from from his career. Sean, thanks for doing this. Well, I want to get in a couple more here. Uh, I, I mean, the the beauty of a, a career in sports broadcasting is that it, it takes you so many different places. And I, I mean, I, I've been in, in broadcasting for a little over 20 years. And it's, you know, I worked in a city called Lloyd Minster, which is a smaller city on the border between Alberta and Saskatchewan. And, you know, I'm very lucky to, to cover the NHL, but some of my most memorable moments were, you know, covering games where you know there's your camera guy with you and maybe 400 fans but something just so crazy and intense happened so like is is there a I'll, i'll ask you this first what's the most I won't say worst, I'll say most unusual broadcast location you've ever had for a game. Because if you're doing minor league whatever, sometimes, you know, it doesn't cater to the uh, to the TV or radio production. Well, I always think one of the reasons I got, got good at hockey is because of Boston University, where I went as a student and later did the games on commercial radio and later did games on TV. And where a lot of where I got my start, the, you know, the press box was behind the net. So that's a much different way to call hockey, to basically to cut your teeth as a hockey play-by-play guy calling games from behind the net, including when I think it was my sophomore year, I'm not sure, one of the years, Dinamo Riga came on a tour of the United States, and they played Boston University. Here I am doing BU against Dinamo Riga, learning all the, the Russian names, including Artur Zirbe and Goal and Sandus Ozolinch played in that game. Uh, you know, obviously great, great players on, on Dinamo Riga, but that's a great, way, <laughs> a great way to learn the game. I did college baseball which is a very small thing in the Northeast. You do that outside. It's not the broadcast location. It's the fact that it's about 35 degrees. You know, you, instead of calling rain delays, you're calling snow delays. So uh, I think the, the bug, if you have it, will drive you to many different places, whether it's, you know, a bad broadcast location or calling MMA fights, as I did a few years ago, and flying to Budapest and uh, Belfast and London and back and forth to the States to do NBA games during the week and then flying back to Europe to do fights on the weekend. So it's uh, 
It, it is an adventure, and you never, I, I think I was reminded of it watching that thing the other night and seeing myself on the ice with the Stanley Cup, that when you're in it, you don't really have the same appreciation for what you have been able to see and the places you've been able to go. And maybe one of the things that I think will come out of all of this when we eventually get back to our lives, I think we're going to, whether you're a fan, a player, a broadcaster, whatever it is you do, I think just any night at the ballpark, you're going to appreciate a little bit more. And what's the greatest individual performance you've ever called? Oh, um, I would say, I mean, there's no shortage of nominations for that. I saw, uh, hockey-wise, I remember calling uh, Paul Carrillo was at Maine and seeing players who just transcended the game, who were so much better than the players they were playing against. And I remember seeing Paul Correa play for Maine and have in a couple of specific games and Jack Eichel in the Frozen Four a couple of years ago in the national semifinal being one of the best players I'd ever, you know, one of the two, three best college players ever just dominating a Final Four game. But I think I have to say a game that changed his history and as a result changed NBA history was Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012 when when LeBron went to Miami, he flamed out in the finals the first year against Dallas and they lost the championship. And the next year against a beat-up, older, underdog Celtics team, they went down three games to two and they were about to lose again And in Boston for a sixth game. And that was the game in which LeBron single-handedly willed Miami to a dominant win in one of his greatest performances. They won the series in seven games. They win the championship. And that was a moment that in which his career, which two years earlier, he played his final game as a Cavalier in Boston in a loss. And it looked like his things were going to go south for him again, but he turned his entire history around. And as a result, the history of the league with that performance that night. Yeah, well said. Hey, Sean, thanks for doing this. Uh, I don't know if you're surprised when you got a note to come on Edmonton Radio, but I'm glad you did it, and it was cool to hear your connection to Alberta, and I, and I hope you're, you're able to visit Canmore sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's been the uh, speaking of things that have been a part of my life. I, Canmore was a very accidental thing I stumbled into in 2002 at the time, and it started out as a crazy idea to have a place there to be like a summer home. And I just fell in love with, you know, I've always been a Canada guy because of the hockey background, but I just fell in love with the town and the mountains and everything about Alberta and spending as much time out there. And since I've had my son, I don't get to spend as much time out there as I would like to, but it's, uh, again, been a big part of my life. I can't wait to come back. Sean, stay safe, man. Thank you so much. You too. Sean Grandy checking in on Inside Sports tonight. Man, cool conversation with him. Play-by-play voice for your Boston Celtics. Subscribe to the Inside Sports Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. This is 630 Chad Inside Sports. Tomorrow, our scheduled guests on Inside Sports. Quarterback for the BC Lions, Mike Riley. And Detroit Red Wings forward, Sam Gagne. We're with you from 7 to 8. As we go through the coronavirus pandemic, we're going to bring you a Global News Hour at 6, from 6 to 7 here on 6.30, Chad. But I'll still be with you 7 to 8 every weeknight. We'll have a best-of show on Friday for Good Friday. I know Easter's going to be quite a bit different for everybody, but I hope you find a way, uh, whether it's with a phone call, a text, or some video chat, to connect with your family and loved ones. Important to keep doing that as well. Tom Brady, Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback, Still sounds strange to say that. He was on with Howard Stern today. And Brady 
responded to critics who say, yeah, Brady's good, but it's really Belichick that makes that team go. I think it's a pretty argument, actually, that people would say that because, again, I can't do his job and he can't do mine. Right. So the fact that you could say, would I be successful without him, the same level of success, I don't believe I would have been. But I feel the same in, in vice versa as well. To have him allowed me to be the best I could be. So I'm grateful for that. And I very much believe that he feels the same about me because we've expressed that to each other. A little bit there from uh, Tom Brady. And, and I tell you what, it, you, you, need, you need a team, right? You need one guy doing this, another guy doing that. And I know our, our next guest, Craig Simpson, he got a lot of really good players, a lot of assists, because he was willing to stand in front of the net and bang those loose pucks in, Craig. So you, you drove up the assist column for, for a lot of your teammates over the years. <laughs> Well, I, I listened to that. Uh, thanks for having me on, Reed. I, I listened to Tom's response to that, and I think that's totally respectful and appropriate. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's getting a little tired of hearing that as he has through the years, but I, I don't think there's any question that when you look at a, um, a tandem of coach and quarterback throughout the history of the NFL, there, there really hasn't been a better. The success and even the failures that they've had you know, think of how many Super Bowls they've won, but also how many they've lost. So the fact that you even get there uh, so many times, I, I think his answer is, is totally fair and not at all him being uh, overly sensitive. I, I think he's bang on. He was able to execute the uh, game plan and schemes that Belichick had uh, to a level that not a lot of other guys would have and vice versa there's a lot of talented quarterbacks in the in the nfl and in history that haven't had that kind of success because they didn't have that kind of mind behind them and that really is the perfect storm isn't it doesn't matter what sport you're talking about when you've got you know great coaching and management uh, at the top end and talented players uh executing that that that's that's the result you get and i i think that one was a pretty unique one over the years yeah, a pretty incredible combination. And, and I want to tie that into some things we saw with the Edmonton Oilers this season. And, of course, you would have been working a playoff game tonight, or I suppose maybe tomorrow if uh, if whatever team you were covering would have been on the Thursday rotation. But, you know, we saw Connor and Leon play together and produce so many points. And, you know, Rob and I, after games, would get the whole, well, Leon's got to drive his own line, drive his own line, to the point that I got sick of that phrase. But, I mean, that that's the thing in hockey. You can't have just one good forward on a line. I, I mean, I mean, Big David got a lot of points too because Dreisaitl finished plays that that nobody else could have finished. And then we saw how Nugent Hopkins' production went up when he got to play with Dreisaitl and Yamamoto. Yeah, I, I don't think it's even just having one, you know, or one or two on a specific line. But I think the challenge for the Oilers all the way through was you can't just have one line being the only line that's productive. In today's, well, forget about even today's game. In, in any uh, year uh, over the decades, you, you can't have a one production line and not anything through your other three and be successful and be a, forget about being a championship team, even being a playoff team. So I, I think that's always been, you know, the balancing act of trying to, get some wins early on when they didn't maybe have uh, complimented guys that were ready to 
contribute at a high level. I, I understand exactly why Dave went back to Leon and Connor at, uh, at you know, the early stages of the season because they needed to get some wins. You need to get some traction. You have to have some confidence. And if you're not ready to have a team that shows that you're going to have depth throughout or maybe the third and fourth line hadn't quite figured out how to play together with some new players yet, uh, I understand why you, you go to that level early on and try to make sure you put some points in the bank. But there's no question that I think everybody, as you were saying, you and Rob talking nightly, if you're going to be a playoff team or a team that hopes to go deep, you can't be a one-line team. And so the fact that they were able to split up the group and have Leon, as you mentioned, get some chemistry with Ryan and get some offense there is is ultimately what you're looking for. So uh, it worked out favorably. It's disappointing that they weren't able to see how far that this group could take it. But I think it was uh, definitely important to have some of that balance within the lineup. Craig, we, we talked in Studio 99. Actually, I think we... You were you the guest the final game before the shutdown? You yeah, were because I was Wednesday night hockey. Remember, it was kind of <laughs> yes. surreal that everything yes. was happening that night, and uh, it was our Wednesday night game uh, with Winnipeg and Edmonton. So I, I got to tell you, Reed, that that's probably the most uh, difficult and distracting game I think I've ever done. Uh, you know, I, I I honestly would say in today's world of having your phone nearby or even being on my uh, iPad getting the stats during the game, but then you look to what's happening around the league. And we went through stretches in the first period and then the second where you had a game in the NBA canceled and then, you know, the announcement of a player testing and then the NBA uh, suspending games all in the middle of, you know, one, two, two and a half periods of our game. Uh, both Jim Houston and I said it was the most distracting and surreal game we've ever done. And, you know, ironically, it's the last game we've done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember you and I talked that night when, when you were on Studio 99 before on the face-off show about your shooting percentage. And for people who don't know, you have the best career shooting percentage in the history of the NHL. So back to back to the chemistry and a connection, and you, and you played with some awesome offensive players, obviously in your career. Yeah. But was there ever a, a, a teammate where you just somehow you just knew, like it just clicked? You almost had that we can read each other's mind and see things three steps ahead connection. Well, I, I would I would say the day I came to the Oilers and Glenn Sather said I was going to play with Mark Messi and Glenn Anderson on the left side. Um, within two or three games and, you know, getting a chance to play with them every day in practice and then get into the games and get into their heads and talk about the game and about how we had to play. Uh, I would say there's two guys, like Glenn and uh, Mark. You, you kind of always knew where they were. We knew where each other were. You know, we had the uniqueness of... Glenn's a left-handed shot playing the right side. I'm a right-handed shot playing the left side. And so Mark in the middle, who was a great backhand passer. So it didn't really matter for Mark. He was he was well-adverse to dishing at both sides. It didn't matter. But we literally had, you know, sort of unwritten rules that anything inside the blue line from the, hash, or from the top of the circle is down. 
every pass was in a position for a one-timer. So you don't give a guy a pass to give him on his backhand. If I'm on the, if I'm a right-hander on the left side, you know that in the offensive zone, you're throwing it to a spot that I could make a quick shot and vice versa for Andy. And, uh, you know, where if we were coming up the ice and it was in the neutral zone, give me the pass to my backhand so I can keep going forward. Just all those little, you, you didn't really... I guess we had, at one point we must have talked about it, in the, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it became just sort of natural. So you always found the hole, you jumped into an area, and, uh, you know, you go back to, I saw on these classic rewinds, uh, the game, what, five in 1990 to win the Stanley Cup, Glenn Anderson's, you know, behind-the-back no-look pass with Mets getting drawing two guys to him and Andy does a behind the back no look pass to me coming in and you know that to me just epitomized what our group was that you always kind of knew where they were you have certain guys that you know their their uh, tendencies and routines and I, I often think of you know Reed you said so many times those little battles along the boards in their in your defensive zone you got to be able to make a play to get the puck out and to get a clean break out of your own zone and I, I remember so often just you get to know what the um, patterns are of your centerman. And for Mark, if the puck was coming from behind the net from a D going to come up the wall and I knew I was getting pinched in, all you had to do is take a quick peek to see where Mark was. And it's in an eight sense. You, you know his, his route was going to be a certain way. You know that where he was going to support. And so often you didn't even have to look. You just had to put the puck to an area to give him a chance. So, you know, it's, it's special to have a, a group. I played with those guys for four years, four and a half years. And uh, you just get to know exactly where they're going to be. So chemistry is everything. And, you know, the fact that uh, Connor and, and Leon had such great chemistry as, as two great players should. You know, if, you, if you're if you an intelligent guy, you can read off the other. You don't have to have the same complement of skills. You just have to have the ability to understand where your complement sits within the group. And I think that was what was so great about our group was, you know, I was by far the slowest guy in that uh, line but he understood where my role would have been and make the play deep in the defensive zone let those guys with their speed back everybody up and then come in in the zone and you know that they're going to find it so uh, anybody in the NHL or at any level who has played with somebody who they really connect with it's a special feeling and I think that's what you see when you see great lines um, you know I think this year and even going back all the way through the playoffs last year that's what makes the Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak line just so incredible. Like how many times, I'm sure you don't see them as much as I do, Reed, but how many times when you know it's not a planned anything. It's just a reaction and you know exactly where the guy's going to be. And it's a no-look pass with three quick moves. And next thing you know, it's in the net. That, that's what's pretty special. And that's what's great to watch as a fan. Craig Simpson joining us at Inside Sports. I love how you describe that and, and great memories of uh, of you and Messi and Anderson together for sure. One-timing the puck, I, I love how you describe that. And skill and that intellect and, and that hockey sense. And, and I've always appreciated too. And I wonder for Craig if, if you maybe even appreciated the guys that you played against even more than you played with who are going to be in the category I'm going to describe 
those guys that you know maybe they're limited physically they don't shoot the hardest or skate the fastest they can't finish but they're just so smart somehow they're always in your way and they're always they're always pester because guys have to adapt right you go from junior to the minors to the nhl you're not the highest scorer on your team when you were you're 17 so you gotta you gotta you gotta figure it out and and yep. those are the guys sometimes their journey and how they find a niche is really interesting well, and, you know, listening to over the years, Bob and I talk on, on that show, I, I if I've said it once, I've said it 10,000 times, um, talking about players who understand what they need to do to make an impact to stay in the lineup. Uh, and that, that, to me, is the biggest jump from being whether you're a junior player or a college player and, and making that next step. Uh, you know, there's plenty of junior players that scored 40, 45 goals in junior, but n- are not going to be offensive guys playing the NHL. So you've got to have that innate sense and smarts of saying, what do I got to do to get the coach to believe in me and trust me and allow me to stay in this lineup? And I think what you're saying there is, the players that understand the role that they have to do and what you have to achieve on a, on a given night. And for some, you know, the, the talented ones or the lucky ones or the, you know, you get, you get a good combination. All of a sudden you're able to get that offense. So that that's what keeps you in the NHL. But I would say, Reed, that's the, the top 10 to 15% that are there. The other guys got to go. I, I got to be, I got to find a way to make, different plays whether it's killing penalties or winning battles on the boards or forechecking turn pucks over and that to me is what every young player that i've ever talked to and given any advice to is you can't think about the offense when you're getting a chance to play in the nhl you got to think about what i have to do to have a chance to have success and that's always your work ethic your tenacity your your strength on the puck your determination i mean all those things will at some point lead to the offense coming but if you don't have that as your base that's where a lot of guys fall off the wayside Craig, it's great to catch up with you. Before we go here, you don't tweet a lot, nor do I, but you put out a pretty uh, heartfelt video yesterday on uh, on Twitter just to yeah. connect with with a lot of people who are working really hard behind the scenes and, and maybe sometimes putting themselves at risk a little bit to, to keep us going here. Yeah, it's a it's pretty surreal time. It's a time of reflection for everybody. I, I think the the oddity of what we're dealing with, the you and I and people in our hockey world, it, it's a time where actually doing nothing is a productive time for us. The, you know, you you really have to keep separated from people. You have to make sure that you're staying safe. You're protecting other people's health. Uh, But to see on TV and listen and read every night the people who are dealing with a calamity of sickness and something that we haven't seen in in maybe even a century um, is is pretty horrifying. I have a lot of friends in the uh, doctors, uh, healthcare workers, and I get and hear their stories and you know, it's pretty daunting. I, I think of what we're doing right now to social distance and stay at home to keep our family safe, to keep my parents who are 85 and 84 safe. Um, but 
when you're going in every day and people are dying in front of you and you're trying to help them and keep them alive and then you also have your family and your kids at home that that's got to be an absolutely agonizing moment that not many doctors deal with life and death a lot and so do nurses and healthcare workers but this is so unusual and so unique so I just always want to let everybody know how much we appreciate the efforts of everyone. Our effort right now is to stay away and do nothing and separate and try to flatten that curve. But the people who are making sure that we have food in the grocery store and deliveries to make sure that the shelves are stocked, but more importantly, the people in the hospitals who are just ramping up for what could be a potentially you know, unprecedented surge. I just can't begin to say how much you appreciate the efforts of everyone and the strength that they uh, give. The, the stories of some of the nurses and doctors are, are just horrifying in so many ways. And, and Reed, as you know, you think of if you're doing that on the front lines and working 20-hour days dealing with death everywhere and you have a 6-year-old and a 12-year-old at home that you're trying to protect as well, uh, that's got to be pretty horrifying. So I they are our true heroes right now, and I think it'll forever change the way we think about them and respond to them going forward. Craig, well said. Love having you on the show. I hope everybody is is doing fine in your life, and let's keep in touch, man. All right. Thanks, Reed. Take care. That is Craig Simpson, former Edmonton Oiler, now broadcaster. You get him on Hockey Night in Canada. You would have been getting him this week broadcasting playoff play games with Jim Houston. Maybe we will get that. Uh, we will have the latest from Emily Cave, the wife of Colby Cave, when we get back. Colby Cave remains in a medically induced coma at a hospital in Toronto. His wife, Emily Cave, recently posted this on Instagram. Please wake up. Please wake up. It's all I keep asking. He's going to wake up, right? We need a miracle. Kobe's parents and myself got to see him through a window and talk to him with a walkie-talkie last night. We are no longer allowed to be in the hospital because of COVID-19 rules. We have no idea when we will be allowed to see him again. The nurse has tied his wedding band to his ankle. A little bit of a post there from Instagram from Emily Cave. As uh, Oilers and Condors forward, Colby Cave remains in a medically induced coma. Man, that is a tough story. Just hoping he's going to pull through from that. That's really tough. Well, this portion of Inside Sports presented by Furnace Family. You experience the Furnace Family difference. Your Furnace Replacement Specialist with over 500 five-star Google reviews. Call 7804-FAMILY or check them out online at FurnaceFamily.com. Okay. Oh, there's the music. We're done already. Back at 7 o'clock tomorrow, our scheduled guests, a guy you used to love. Well, you probably still love him, just maybe it's different now. BC Lions quarterback Mike Riley and Sam Gagne from the Detroit Red Wings. Was an Edmonton Oiler for almost the entire season before getting traded. He's slated to join us too. Dave Campbell's the producer of Inside Sports. Kellen Kennedy's your studio operator. My name is Reed Wilkins. Hope you are safe and healthy. Be smart out there. Adler's next. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.